So last week I started off by talking about a game that we own but I've never actually played for real, dominoes, where we own dominoes but all we really do is set them up to knock them down. So I figured uh, this Sunday we'd start off the same exact way, I'll talk about a game that I've never played before but I've always been fascinated with, Mousetrap. You guys remember that game, Mousetrap? It was a good game. You thought it was good. I, I've still never played that in my life. And I know you guys feel terribly for me that I've missed out on that life experience. I've never played Mousetrap. My family never owned it growing up. And when I would go over to a friend's house, they would have Mousetrap sitting there up on their shelf with their games. But none of my friends ever wanted to play Mousetrap. And, and it wasn't, I mean, I had no idea what, why it was. But since then, as I've grown older and as I still can't find anybody who actually wants to play Mousetrap, I discovered that nobody actually really likes the game. When they first got it, what they really like to do is just set up the complicated contraption and watch it go. And it, but it wasn't for the gameplay, it was just for like all the stuff that you got to set up in the machine and get the trap to fall down. Can you imagine if they had just made the game where you just put a cage like over the mouse? Is that what happens? I don't even know. But I assume you put a cage over the mouse and like that's all it was. They would never sell the game. The game was sold because of all the setup and that was initially really fun and that was great to do, see the machine go. But then everybody got tired of doing it. I mean, I imagine you play that maybe like five times and after that you just get tired of setting up the thing because it's the same the contraption does the same thing every single time, and it gets old, it gets boring, and then finally you just take Mousetrap and it ends up sitting on the shelf, and you have a friend who comes over who's never gotten to play, and you won't even get it out to play with him for that. You might not know, a little bit of trivia for, for you for this, but you might not know that the inspiration behind the game Mousetrap was a guy named Rube Goldberg. Rube Goldberg was a newspaper cartoonist, an illustrator, an artist, and he, this was at the turn of the century when uh, machine age where people were uh, making a bunch of patents about different things that they could do, uh, and I'll share a couple of those with you in a minute, but he thought it was hilarious how difficult people like to make simple tasks. So here's an example of one of his, uh, one of his cartoons that he'd make where this machine is an automatic napkin wiper. And so what you would do is you would start over, I can't even find where A is. A is right there. So you lift the spoon and it pulls the other spoon and knocks the cracker up to the bird and you keep going. And so he would develop all of these, these things and he was the first person to come up with all of this. And you might be thinking, it was interesting, during his lifetime, Webster added his name as an adjective to the dictionary to mean accomplishing by complex means what seemingly could be done simply. Now, this may not make sense to you as what he's making fun of or uh, satirizing uh, with drawing these uh, cartoons, but listen to a couple of these patents that existed at the turn of the century. In 1905, there was a patent for a double bicycle for looping the loop. All right, so uh, I guess the, the contraption is there somehow to make it easier for you to loop. So that's an actual patent that somebody put out in 1905. In 1900, there was a patent that was made for a rocking or oscillating bathtub. So what you would do is you would get in your bathtub, you would tie up the, I guess that would be made of leather or something like that, or rubber, and you would tie that up and the bathtub would shake. You put soap and water in it. And is that how you wanna like clean yourself? That, so that's what people were coming up with because it's so tiring to take a washcloth and soap and scrub your body. All right, and here's my personal favorite. This is in 1896. This is a patent for a saluting device. All right, so this is for the discerning gentleman 
who wants to be able to tip his cap to people as he walks by them, but he can't actually be bothered to be a gentleman and tip his cap himself. So that's what this patent is for and this invention that people came up with. And so now you know the origin of Rube Goldberg machines. You can impress your friends the next time you watch the opening scene of Back to the Future, the breakfast machine, or if you watch Pee Wee's Playhouse or Big Adventure. Actually, I can't remember what the name of that that movie was the first one he does, but there's a breakfast machine and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang too. They're all have everything to do with food, I guess, uh, when you do that. But you can impress people with your knowledge now. And, and the reason people do that and the reason people still create these Rube Goldberg machines and they're fascinated by these complex machineries is because they're fun and they're interesting, but they're also kind of me, they're meant to be absurd. They're creative, but nobody actually would want to do that in their life because it's overly complicated, and all it would really do is create busy work in your life. Like, you have to set it up, and you have to clean up afterward, and nobody's actually going to do that as a regular thing in, in their lives. So how come it is when people ask you how you're doing in life or what you're up to, how, how come so many of us, when we respond to that, we say, we're busy? Because nobody wants to live a complicated life. Nobody wants to add busy work into our life. Nobody wants to make things more difficult than they have to be. So how come so often when we ask someone else how they're doing, we hear back they're busy? And it's a kind of an interesting thing, too, because there's a little bit of a, 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 a kind of a martyr complex that, that's there where you ask that and you're just like, oh, I'm busy. But there's also kind of a little bit of a badge of honor and pride there as well. I'm busy because I'm so important. And I have so many important things going on in my life. And so many people need me. And there's so many things I'm involved in. And I'm just, I'm terribly important. It's almost like a badge of honor, a badge of, of courage that we wear in our culture. And yet so many of us live busy, stressed out, anxiety-producing, complicated lives. And it's becoming the norm in our culture rather than the exception. And here's why it's a problem. As disciples of Jesus, who are called to having the same attitude as Jesus, humbling himself as a servant, being available to serve other people, when we lead complicated and busy and out-of-control out of lives, it sets off a chain reaction that actually suppresses the good news of Jesus that we're called to share. See if anything on this list resonates with your life right now. You're trying to do too much. You're trying to control too much. You find yourselves more and more responding with negativity. You constantly seek validation from other people. You feed into drama. You worry constantly about your problems. You hold on too tight to everything. You hesitate every step of the way. You focus on every time and place other than right here and right now. You try to cut corners. You try to avoid tough and necessary conversations. You lose track of your priorities. You procrastinate. You have far more baggage than you need. You let your old mistakes live on in your heart and your mind. You give up too soon. And you compare yourself to others who seem better off. I don't know about you, but I check off way too many things on that list than what are healthy for my life. Way too many things that complicate things and make me busy and make me stressed and anxious than what should be. And I totally understand and recognize that there are seasons that we go through in life where things are made complicated for us. 
where there are outside events, there are outside decisions by, by other people that make our lives more difficult and more busy and more stressed and more complicated. However, the issue is the list that I just read are all things that we control and we decide on. And it's when we choose to live a life of busyness and stress and complication that it becomes an issue. And I know you've had conversations with friends where they've told you exactly what's going on in their life. It's, oh, this is what I'm worried about, and this is what I'm stressed over. Here's the decision that I have to make, and here's the thing that's going on at work, and here's the thing that's going on in family. And you're listening to the details that they're sharing with you about the situation. And in your head, and you're not going to say this out loud, right? Uh, but in your head, you're thinking, yeah, that's, that's not really all that complicated. Like you, you probably have a solution ready for them right then and there. It's like, actually, what you need to do is the thing that you're just avoiding, and you're trying to make excuses for that. You know exactly what you should do with that coworker that you're having problems with. You should go talk to him. You know exactly what you should do with that spouse that you're having issues with. You should actually deal with it with, in that situation. But we don't do that when it's our own situation and our own scenario because we overcomplicate things and we make them more difficult in our lives. That's one of the reasons why we say and why we recognize that Jesus doesn't want us to live our faith alone. There's one uh, theme that was very prevalent within our gel groups this past week or small groups that get together uh, during the week uh, as we encourage and edify each other as we're living out our faith. And Chip and I were talking about this because Chip went and visited every group this week, right? I think you saw you went and hung out with every group this week and the topic this week was stress it was this very idea of being anxious about things that are going on in our life and to a T as Chip and I were talking about it is it is the case and it is overwhelmingly obvious that stress and busyness and complicated lives is one of the things that all of us just about are dealing with right now in our lives and it's stifling when we're living lives of stress and business and complication, even as we're striving to be fit for what God has called us to be. So when Jesus gives us this mission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, this great commission, and as we read that this morning, I'm going to ask you to read this in the lens of understanding that when Jesus tells us and gives us instruction of how we're supposed to be disciples, that they're very simple things. He doesn't give a big list. He gives three things for us to do. But it's the way that we live our lives, the way that we choose to lead our lives, that often makes it difficult to share this simple gospel. So here's what he says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. The disciples are gathered around him, and Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus, last week we read Jesus, when it came to us and serving us, he didn't regard his equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself as a servant. And that's the first cue that we take and the chain reaction that we want to live out in our lives. In this moment, Jesus is saying, hey, I need you to recognize that I am equal with God because I'm going to authoritatively as God give you instruction for how you are supposed to live your life as a follower of Jesus. And the main thing that I want you to do, and this is the thing that encompasses everything that Christ calls us to do as we live out our faith, is you need to make disciples. That's what you want. I mean, that is, that is the chain reaction throughout history that has brought us to this point in listening to God's word and being a part of a church and being a Christian. 
are disciples who have made disciples who have made disciples. And that's what you need to do. Make disciples. And the way that you're going to do that, and here are the imperatives that he gives in order for disciples to be made, is first you've got to go. You, you, you actually got to do that intentionally. And a disciple is someone who's been immersed in water and has taught what Jesus has, been, has taught. And, and that's what it is. As we talk about him, I'm going to take him a little bit out of order, though. If we're interviewing Jesus on stage and asking him, so what, what does a follower of Jesus look like? He'd say, well, somebody who's been baptized and somebody who's being taught and teaching what I taught. Very simple instructions. And yet, if we were to gather all the books that were written on what Jesus taught, and, and baptism for that matter, and put them in this room, we wouldn't be able to fit them all. Why? Because we overcomplicate everything. Think about how many different things are said about simple things that Jesus taught. Think about how many different opinions there are about how we're supposed to live out our faith in our life. Think about on Sunday morning, how many different options there are for people to go and experience what Jesus taught in our lives. Really simple instructions, but we complicate things. So I'm just going to talk about these things very simply. You think about, well, how do I, as a disciple maker, how do I baptize and teach someone? Well, I think the big thing is for us to understand what these things are supposed to accomplish. Baptism, for example, is meant to symbolize the gospel message in our lives. Why would somebody want to be a disciple of Jesus? Is it to live a better life? No. That might be controversial. Is it motivation for a higher power guided morality because we need that in order to be moral? No. Maybe that's controversial. The reason we need the gospel is that it's the recognition that sin causes spiritual death and it separates us from God. And what Jesus offers us through the cross and the resurrection is spiritual life. Sin separates us from God. God sends Jesus to die as a substitute for what we deserve. Jesus resurrects and becomes a living sacrifice to allow us to be brought back and bought back to God. And this is the picture that baptism paints. Not only is it something that Jesus calls us into, but it's also a regular reminder for us of what the gospel message is. Is that Jesus died and he was raised for us and he invites us, invites us into that same resurrection life. Um, if you're considering being baptized or if you're ever in a conversation with someone about that and, and they're thinking through it, one of the things I do is I read Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 7 every single time when I talk with someone who's about to make that decision. And this is why, because it paints that same picture that baptism is meant to remind us of as we're sharing the gospel with other people, that Jesus has given us a way out from our sin. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Gospel simply means good news. And for people who are broken and recognize that brokenness, and for people who are desperate and are looking for a solution for that desperation, and people who recognize that their busy, complicated, out-of-control lives are not at all what God means for us to live out, 
they are looking for this good news. And so we get to share that. This recognition that while we can admit that there's nothing we can access on our own that can undo the damage that we have caused in our brokenness, that God gives us a free gift of grace and mercy through His Son that is freely given and no matter what can be freely accepted and is symbolized in a shared way that equalizes our standing before God as joint heirs of His promise. And so just as baptism symbolizes the gospel and reminds us of the gospel message, the good news, teaching the second thing that Jesus says, this is what makes a disciple, makes the gospel visible. It makes it tangible. It helps us to see it and live it out. See, in verse 17, right before this passage, there were some disciples that were still doubting who Jesus was, even as they see the resurrected Christ. And Jesus, in his authority as God made flesh, as he's giving this command, he reassures them in verse 20 that I'm going to be with you through this throughout the end of the age. Well, how, how can he do that? As Jesus isn't here. He's not physically standing here right here next to me. Well, there's two things, important things that are going on here. One is that Matthew has made it a point to close his gospel, his good news about Jesus, in the same way that he opens it. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, um, he says that he writes about how the virgin Mary will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That the whole reason that Jesus comes is in a very unique way in that God doesn't expect us to figure out a way to get to him, but that he comes down to us and gives us the way back to him, is that God will always be with us, and he represents that through Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit that he gives us through his ministry. And that as teachers, here's the second thing, as teachers of the commands of Jesus, the teaching of the gospel leads others closer to God's intention and purpose for humanity as image bearers in his creation. What are you talking about image bearers? We've got to look back at Genesis chapter 1 and the whole intent at the beginning when God says, let us make man in our image. And that we get to reflect and be Jesus for other people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 we read, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit, who is the spirit. So as you and I increase our alignment with living out our lives and our faith according to the knowledge and the application of what Jesus has taught and modeled out for our lives, we increasingly show Jesus among each other and to those who are seeking him. Baptize, teach, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. That's the picture, that's the reality that Jesus wants to live into. And here's, what's make, here's what makes that difficult. And now we get back to the go part. Because the going is what positions us to be able to share the gospel in our lives. But that's the part that we have the most problem with. See, the going part, it's both intentional because Jesus always has a plan. He's always going somewhere to teach. He's always going, hey, it's time to travel over to this town. Try to move, it's time to move on to this town. It's always an intentional thing for Jesus where he's planning this out and saying, all right, I need to go and share this message over here. But it's also opportunistic because one of the things that Jesus did, does as he goes and as he's living out and teaching his ministries, he's definitely got a people that he's trying to go to and reach, but he also always takes the time to stop along the way to share the gospel and to share his message with people who are reaching out and crying out to him 
in his ministry. See, disciples, and when he says make disciples of all nations, he's not just talking about other nations. He's not just talking about Granada, Nicaragua. And then while we're going to celebrate as the day is long, every single time there's life change and discipleship happening in another nation, in another country, that's the same celebration we're invited to by Jesus when he calls us to make disciples where we are as well. And I'm convinced that sharing the gospel and sharing the good news about Jesus, baptizing and teaching, seems like such a daunting task because we pit it up against everything else we're trying to do in our lives. See, for us, this intentional idea of going and doing something, for many of us who are saying, hey, how are things going? Well, I'm busy. Man, that's just another thing that I've got to fit in my schedule. That's another thing that somehow I've got to fit time into, fit in, into my time and my schedule. And I, I just, man, I just don't know how to do it. I don't know how I'm going to work that in to all the other things that we're supposed to do and that I'm supposed to do and the responsibilities that I have. But see, this is never meant to be, as Jesus is giving these instructions, this is never meant to be separate from anything else that we're doing in our lives. In every single area of our life, we are given the opportunity to share the good news about Jesus. The washing away of sin and the way to live a more simplified and godly directed life in every area that we have. There's so many times, I think, that we're not even aware of that people in our lives are requesting and asking for us to share the gospel with them. As your coworker is sitting in front of you and out pouring out their heart about what's going on in their lives, when someone asks to spend time with you, when someone that you know has a need, these are all opportunities that we're given by God to share the gospel with someone. For many of us, Jesus' command to go probably actually means to stop and to pause and to take a moment to be able to share the good news with someone else. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we read that we're not supposed to conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so we can know what God's will is for our lives. And one of the patterns of this world that keeps us from that is busyness and overcomplicated and out-of-control lives. In Stranger God, Richard Beck writes, the speed at which we move through our days is a form of violence. And that may seem like a really bold statement, but how we view life and how we approach it is directly tied to how we're viewing the gospel and how we're living it out. And so I, I want us to actually draw a picture together, and we're, we're going to do this because I want to give you just a really practical tool to evaluate where you might be when it comes to your relationship with God and how you're living out the gospel in your life. So here's what you're going to do. If you've got a program, a piece of paper, or you can do this on your tablet or phone or something like that, grab a pen, grab a connect card if you need to use one of those, and draw a horizontal and ver uh, vertical intersecting lines like this. We're, we're, we're going to draw an XY graph, all right, for those of you who enjoy those. That's what we're going to do. Okay, once you've done that, uh, I want you to write, next slide, I want you to write busy and margin on the horizontal lines. So on the one side, busy, 
another side margin. Margin means space, intentional space that we set aside. And what I want you to do is kind of pretend like on that graph you've got negative five through negative one, then you've got one through five. And I want you to just go ahead and mark where you feel like you are on that line. Here, you know, if you're like, man, I know I'm busy and this is where, and you don't have to show this to anyone. You can do this in your head if you want to. Just kind of think about where you are on this line. Then on the vertical line, I want you to write godly and ungodly on that line. And I know, like, <laughs> we're in church, so nobody's going to say, I'm living an ungodly life. And so I'm going to mark that out very clearly. Think about your spiritual disciplines. How often are you in God's Word? How often are you allowing your mind to be transformed? How often are you praying? How often are you in relationship with others and being taught and teaching others? How many people are you making disciples out of, and how are you being made a disciple? And so consider where you are. Think of that line that way, okay? And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to guess that most of us, if we're, if we're honest, are on one of these two quadrants on the left side. So if, if as you have made your marks on those lines and you go over and you make your dot in the quadrant that, that you're in, here's where I think most of us are going to find ourselves in. And this is not an indictment. I think this is just a reality of how we get caught up in our culture and how we live our lives. Most of us, many of us, are just going to be stressed out. Because we're so caught up. Our schedules are running us. We're not running our schedules. The things that we commit to are overburdening us. So we don't find time to read Scripture. We don't find time to pray. We don't find time to do the things that God calls us to do. Most of us are just going to be stressed out. And then those of us who really kind of you know, think you know, we get caught up in this idea that busyness and being important and all that kind of thing, having all these things going on is a kind of a good thing in our life. We should have tons of stuff going on all the time and we're living godly lives. See, most of us think that's got to be the sweet spot. Really, all that does is put us in a surface-level relationship with God. Because when we start to scratch the surface, the pressure of a busy life, a life that's overly complicated and complex, when something big does happen that's on the outside of what we can choose, we start to not be able to handle it and crumble under that pressure. I think most of us are probably not on the bottom right, but here's what it looks like when we have plenty of time on our hands and we're not spending any time with God and working on that relationship and the spiritual disciplines that he calls us to and learning what Jesus is teaching and trying to apply that to our lives. We're just living a selfish life, and it's going to be empty. I mean, a lot of times that's almost kind of our our goal because of how busy that we make ourselves. We're like, man, I can't wait till I can retire and not do anything with my life for as long as I live. I, I, I mean, I just, it's kind of a goal in our culture, right? I, w- I want to retire so I don't have to do anything anymore. I mean, you just live a selfish life. Here's the sweet spot. When we are pursuing what God wants for our life and we are c- creating intentional time and space to be able to live that out. If you overschedule everything, then that means in your schedule, you put in and you block out a meeting with yourself, with God, and when people ask you about that time, you say, sorry, I have a meeting scheduled. And that's intentionally in your... If you're the kind of person who flies by the seat of your, seat of your pants, and, and that's how you get caught up and everything, it's the same thing. You need to set aside time in your life, margin for this space, because this is holy. Rest is holy. 
It's one of the things that God specifically sets aside as a special time during the week in creation is, is rest. Like, that's one of the big things that he does. And when we do that, that's the space in which God can work out the good news of the gospel in our lives and through our lives. How we share the gospel comes from how we're experiencing the gospel. And so let me share, you, uh, share with you a story. In 1973, there were two psychologists that were trying to figure out what is, the, what is the correlation between people that are in need and people taking the time to stop and help them. And so what they did, they said, well, who, who actually tends to, to help people? They said, well, Christians do. So they went to a seminary, and they, they were going to use a bunch of people who were studying in seminary to become priests to try out their experiment. So here's what they did. They gave all of these, all of these students in the seminary uh, the responsibility to write a sermon on the Good Samaritan. If you don't know what the Good Samaritan is, read it sometime. It's a great story, but it's basically about a guy who no one expected would stop and help this person in desperate need, and Jesus was pointing out to the people who are religious and hypocrites, this is actually how you should be living your life, not the way that you live it, okay? So this is the Good Samaritan. They're supposed to be working on the sermon. For part, for half of these students, they said, you know what, actually, you're running a few minutes late, so you need to get to uh, where you're going to preach the message. The other people, the other half, they said, you know what, you're a little early, but why don't you go ahead and head to where you need to preach the message. On the way, in the same spot, they had a man laying on the ground in desperate need of help groaning, all that kind of stuff. So they had an actor there. They had people observing in the area. So the seminary students are walking through a common, common area. So both, both halves did the same thing, the people who were rushed and the people who had time uh, to, to get there. And here's what they found. Out of these seminary students who were preparing a message specifically about taking the time to stop and help someone, of the seminary students who were rushed, 10% stopped and did anything for this person. 10%. Of the half that had time, you say, oh, this is, this is going to be a good one. 63% stopped and helped this person. So here's, here's the thing. Is that better? Yeah, it, it's better. What, what would we like it to be? The chain reaction that God can set off through you in the life of a stranger or a neighbor or a family member or a friend or your spouse or your kid will start when you and I create the space in our, in our, and time in our lives to live out and to share the good news of Jesus and the time and the space that he created for us to be reconciled for God. And that's what we do is we come together and worship in church. That's why we prioritize it. That's why it's on our schedule. That's why every week at Velocity, we do this. And we pause and we take communion because it's a reminder for us of who we are, whose we are, and what we've been called to do. And that is to take time and to create space to be able to experience the gospel and align our hearts and our minds in worship to God so that we can live lives that share the gospel. Let's pray as we take communion together this morning. God, we thank you for um, this moment that we have to stop and be reminded 
of your gospel, of the good news about Jesus, that you freely allow us to be redeemed to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.